0: Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today. Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Robert Levine, the author of The Failed Promise, Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass, and the Impeachment of Andrew Johnson. He's authored six books and is a distinguished professor at the University of Maryland. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Levine. Thanks for having me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Even before hearing the title of this book, The Failed Promise, I've always thought of Reconstruction as the most important period in American history. It was the moment we could have been made whole, where our nation could have provided the rights that many are still fighting for, both at the ballot box and in the economy. What went wrong? Why did a moment of hope turn into one that the country has never recovered from? It's easy to sum it up by saying that an assassin's bullet took our greatest president and left us with potentially our worst, but at the time, Dr. Levine, many were not so sure that that would be the case. What did so many see in Andrew Johnson in 1865 as he took office that we simply don't look back
1: and see today? Right, so that's a great question. And one of the things i discovered while writing the book is that Johnson was actually a complex figure. And that isn't to say that he wasn't a terrible president. And that he wasn't a failure as a a reconstruction uh, president. But uh, it's a book that started out with my interest in Frederick Douglass. I've done a lot of writing on Frederick Douglass. And I started working on Andrew Johnson. And was surprised to find a number of things that kind of speak to your question. Why is it that people were actually thinking this guy could be a good president? So this is a person who was from a southern state who opposed secession. Tennessee, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he's from Tennessee, and he's, I think, the only Democratic senator, he was a senator at the time, who opposed secession. Around 1862, 1863, he comes out against slavery. Uh, Again, kind of surprising. And in in both of these positions that he took, both anti-secession and anti-slavery, he really put his life on line. In 1864, as I talk about in the book, and we might want to talk about this a bit more, he, as as military governor of Tennessee, he claimed to have emancipated the enslaved people of Tennessee, and he took great credit for that. Uh, A lot of Republicans had trouble with Lincoln, one of the shocking things that I found while doing the research is that there's a diary entry from a congressman in Indiana who talks about how shocked he was that when Lincoln was assassinated, people were there were a few people that were happy and thought that Johnson could be a better president because of these uh, bold stands that Johnson took at the time. So until about May 29th, 1865, when Johnson issues an amnesty proclamation, lots and lots of people thought this is the man. And even uh, someone like Charles Sumner, who met with Johnson shortly after he assumed the presidency, was writing his friends and saying, this is the person that we were waiting for. And, it, and even Sumner found Lincoln moving slow on issues of reconstruction, on uh, Black voting rights and things like that. So a Southerner who's actually anti-slavery, anti-secession, who claimed to have freed enslaved people, showed a promise.
0: We're gonna talk about the uh, amnesty uh, proposal first, or, or, or at some point. But first, I wanna talk, uh, I wanna have you set the stage for us. Um, the Civil War is ending. The Confederacy is 11 unrecognized states that the North is trying to figure out how to bring back into the Union. Some argue that Reconstruction is merely a matter, at the time they're arguing, it's merely a matter of pledging an oath. Others want more supervision. They want some, uh, some stipulations attached to reentering the Union. They want more supervision of the South. Um, they want supervision of how Blacks are gonna be integrated into society. So starting with Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, and Frederick Douglass, what are the key proposals for making America whole?
1: Well, I mean, there, there's a bunch of them. And if I start with Frederick Douglass. <laughs> yeah, g- yeah
0: give, give us a I, few of the key ones. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, he, he, famously, he famously said uh, that slavery is not over until blacks have the right to vote. And so I you could go back to the 1840s and one of the first Black conventions that Frederick Douglass attended in Buffalo. And the Black cities working with are calling for citizenship. During the Civil War, Douglass says this is a war of emancipation, but it's also a war that will create citizenship for African Americans. Uh, he had mixed feelings about Lincoln, though I think eventually he came to like him because he met with him twice in the White House. But at the beginning of the Civil War, he thought that Lincoln was moving too slowly. In in Douglas's newspaper, he compared him to Jefferson Davis. Um, and the more radical Republicans themselves thought that Lincoln was going too slowly, that he had different kinds of plans to readmit uh, the former Confederate states if 10% of the electorate from 1860 approved various sorts of things, but not necessarily Black rights, Black voting rights. So uh, you have Douglas, who's very adamant about voting rights and, and citizen, citizenship rights for African Americans. You have Lincoln, who in his last speech before the assassination said, maybe educated or intelligent Black people could vote and those who fought in the Union Army. And who knows where he would have gone with this? And I think Eric Foner is interesting in in his biography of Lincoln in, in saying, you know, forthrightly, he doesn't know, you know, what Lincoln would have done, but it seemed like he was moving towards gradual emancipation. Andrew Johnson was, I think, no one really knew what his positions were, but they knew that that he was the southerner who took bold stands against secession and against slavery, that that they knew. Um, He went on record near the end of 1865, so this is about eight months, seven months in office, saying he could imagine the possibility of some black people having the vote. And again, like Lincoln, he says, if they fought in the Union Army, and I think in his case, he said, if they have $250 in property. But he doesn't go anywhere with that at all. Uh, Instead, what he says is, I am going to restore the Southern states. And basically they could be restored as they were, except that slavery has to be abolished and they have to, in some informal way, pledge loyalty to the nation. Uh, so he argues for what historians call presidential restoration. He would do the job. You know, I am the man, I will do it. And the radical Republicans who you alluded to at the beginning of your question are saying we want much, much more than that. So Thaddeus Stevens is the person who in the summer of 1865 boldly and I think frighteningly for the Southerners, articulates the notion that the North conquered the South. The South has conquered territory. We can create what we want in the South. And what he and other radical Republicans were calling for was black voting rights and black citizenship, and uh, keep all of the former Confederates out of power. Um, and it, it from the point of view of Southerners, seemed punitive. From the point of view of Douglas and others, seemed like a good idea. Uh, But again, with voting rights, the Republicans moved slowly. And that bothered Douglas. And I should stop there and see what kind of question you have.
0: If the most radical, it it leads perfectly, what you just said leads perfectly into my next question. If the most radical Republican ideas had taken hold, what would America have looked like by 1875, and what would it look like today?
1: Right. So that's a great question, and I will begin by saying I don't know. <laughs> I will also You're not allowed remind, to answer. You don't know. I will on also, the I will also remind you that I work out of an English department and I read literary works. So big, bold historical questions are a little bit difficult. All that said. <laughs> um, my own feeling is that there's an irony. And, and the irony is that if Lincoln had been president, I don't think we would have the 14th and 15th amendments as quickly as we had them. Because they were developed by the radical Republicans who remained the majority until around 1870 or into the early 1870s. They developed them in response to Johnson. So in, with, because of Johnson's intransigence and his decision to move slowly, uh, you have the 14th and the 15th Amendment. Now, you have the amendments that should be very helpful in a happy ending to Reconstruction, uh, because you have Black citizenship and you have uh, black rights to vote, and that all fell apart in the 1870s with a Republican in power. I mean, Grant was in power. So the question is, how do you make that not fall apart? You have on the books, all the laws that you need. And an argument that someone like Albion Torje made, and he was a reconstruction novelist that I'm working on right now, is that you would have to have a federal occupation of the South is that something we would have wanted? And would that have led to the kind of happy ending we want? I don't know. So let me say that one of the large arguments of the book is that there is racism everywhere. There's racism in the North, there's racism in the South, there's racism even among the radical Republicans. And Douglas acknowledges in some passages, I quote near the end of the book, that such is the long history of slavery and racism in the United States, that it would take it would take some time for good things to happen, and arguably, with the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson uh, Supreme Court decision that legalized segregation and, and Jim Crow, I mean, good things couldn't happen until that was overturned in the 1950s, and then you have the Civil Rights Movement, and you know, you keep making progress, and then kind of going back a
0: little bit too. And the going back, some of it, well, maybe a lot of it is done, um, happens because of some of the things we're gonna talk about, which is some of the white violence and terrorism that we see. Right, Um, right. But but I I wanna get to this sort of political marriage between Andrew Johnson and Abraham Lincoln. Um, You know, we've got history's doormat here known for being aggressively racist and being a drunk. And his wagon gets hitched to, you know, as stars go in American history, one one of the brightest stars in American right. history, right. Abraham Lincoln. What did Lincoln see in Andrew Johnson when he picked him to be his running mate in
1: 1864? Right. Um, and I'm not sure that Lincoln... <laughs> Was totally in control of this decision. It was a re- Republican Party, or they called themselves Union Party, decision. Um, there weren't polls like we have now. And it turns out, you know, our polls tend to be wrong. Uh, but there were signs that Lincoln was going to lose the election of 1864. A lot of people thought he was going to lose because the war was dragging on. And um, so his then vice president was from Maine and they thought we need sectional balance. So they get Johnson for sectional balance. I mean, that's the first big thing. The second big thing is that Johnson was the military governor, as appointed by by Lincoln and Stanton of Tennessee, and was doing a good job speaking for the union, upholding the union, actually writing back and forth to Lincoln about different sorts of things. So this seemed like an ideal choice. This is a Southerner who is actually ruling over a former Southern, now kind of regarded as a a border state. And, you know, as I've already said, someone who comes out against slavery and someone who all along had been against secession. The whole question of whether Johnson was a drunkard I mean, an interesting thing about that is that the major historians who have written and the biographers who have written on Johnson say he wasn't a drunkard. But he he was drunk at the wrong time. But he was (laughs) was drunk at the (laughs) wrong time. He was drunk on inauguration. Come on. (laughs) Uh, And the argument that's made is that he was sick. And this is what people did at the time. If you're sick, you keep having (laughs) your shots of whiskey. Uh, so he was drunken out of it at inauguration. There were even some people thought right then he should be dumped. But um, I, I think uh, who knows if, how, you know, how much Lincoln got to know him because Johnson showed up in Washington just a month or so before right. uh, the assassination. And so he exists as, it, and you know, and the question is, here, you know, he was racist, but there's so much racism out there, I mean, everywhere. And so that's almost the default. Uh, what, what, what happened to him where he developed, you know, it's, it's horrible. And it's kind of like he went back to say, I spent my life kind of turning against the Southern enslavers because they looked down on me as a working class Southerner, but now I want to hitch my wagon to that. You know so Lincoln hitches his wagon to Johnson. Johnson, in some ways, hitches his wagon to the former slave owners, to the wealthy power people in the South, and then all of his racism comes out, even as he insists throughout his life, his career, that I love black people and they love me.
0: One thing we always wrestle with here in the present is how to evaluate those of another time. And some historians say, yes, of course I can judge them. Others say, hey, they're products of their time. What were Lincoln and Johnson's views of race and why is it important to hear exactly what they thought of black people in evaluating why reconstruction eventually doesn't work?
1: Right. Um, I would say that, that, I'll start with Johnson because that's easy. I think he saw black people as inferior I think he saw black people as potentially savage. I think that even though he was anti-slavery, uh, we know that he had some enslaved people before he turned against slavery. And they remained in an odd way, people that he regarded as his friends because he would brag that he never separated families, you know, in the way that Harrodby just does, said, that's one of the horrible things about, about slavery. Um, And Johnson now and then talked about the possibility of colonization, you know, of shipping Blacks out of the United States. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, I think you could say, shared some of these prejudices, but he was able to grow. So one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, Johnson always talked to Black people. Uh, Lincoln talked with them. He listened. Uh, He met with Uh, Douglas three times, actually. Uh, He seemed to hear what Douglas said, said, uh, proclaimed that he regarded Douglas as a friend. I mean, that's one of the last things that Lincoln said, actually, before he died. Uh, And before he was assassinated, he talked about Blacks uh, possibly having the right to vote. Both Henry Louis Gates and a collection on, on Lincoln and race and Eric Foner, both are able to chart very easily and very readily a whole bunch of racist things that Lincoln said. And I am with the historians who believe that Lincoln during the Civil War thought that the best solution to the race problem was to colonize blacks to Central and South America. And there's a lot of evidence that he Believe that. Um, I'm also of the school that people grow, that people change, that we have to be careful about kind of throwing our ideas onto a previous period. So I don't want to cancel Lincoln because he said some really racist things. And as both Henry Louis Gates and Eric Foner point out, regularly use the N word which was also true of Benjamin Wade, who was one of the most radical of the radical Republicans. So to go back to an earlier question you asked, you know, why wasn't there a happy ending to reconstruction around 1870, 18, you know, 1875, whatever? There's racism out there. But in here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna align myself with Foner. He argues at the end of his Lincoln book that Lincoln would have grown and he can make that argument because there's evidence throughout his life that Lincoln kept changing. He was a pragmatist. He observed things, he changed. Uh, Johnson seemed the opposite that he showed for a few years, some possibility, some promise And in my book, The Failed Promise, one of those promises for me is Johnson. You know, he showed promise. But then he seems to revert back to all of the common stereotypes and racial thinking of the old South. And so that's where he ends up as a Reconstruction president, kind of fighting for the South.
0: One of the things you say in the book is that we have too often focused on radical Republicans in Congress in analyzing Reconstruction. And you say you wanted to write Black voices back into this narrative. What can we learn from just the fact that they have been left out for so
1: long? (laughs) Well, we can learn something we might not want to hear much about. I mean, that there is kind of some racism built into traditional historiography, even when the people doing the traditional historiography aren't racist, you know, and I think um, are are very progressive. There's also issues that have to do with archives. You know, what is the standard archive that you look at when you're studying, let's say the Andrew Johnson years, and the standard archive for historians is the congressional record, okay? The archives that I looked at, that I have never seen cited anywhere in any historical account, and I'm not saying that I am less racist than these other historians, but I read the uh, the Christian Recorder. I mean, have you read the Christian Recorder? I have not. So that I haven't read the
0: Congressional (laughs) Record either, to be fair. So.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, then, what <laughs> you will, when you do your reconstruction, right. when I write my uh, book, right, <laughs> right. Uh, the Christian Recorder was the leading cultural organ newspaper of Black people at the time. It was associated with uh, the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Some of it was about religion, but virtually everything that I discuss in the book. For example, when Douglas and a Black delegation met with Andrew Johnson.
0: Oh, we're going to get Johnson. to that. Yeah, we're yeah. going to get to that ver-
1: Johnson's various speeches. They are all in the Christian recorder. Uh, so the main journal featuring Black writers, Black editors uh, focusing on the period hasn't ever been looked at by historians because... I think of the traditional training of, of, you know, what archives you look at. You also look at the New York Herald, you know, uh, a widely read um, paper edited by by white people. Um, I looked at the elevator. That's the leading black newspaper in San Francisco, edited by Philip K. Bell, who was a friend of Frederick Douglass. I looked at letters between Douglas and his sons. I mean, there's just all this stuff out there. I looked at Frances Harper, great African-American poet, but also a lecturer who was giving lectures about Andrew Johnson and then writing about Johnson in her fiction. Uh, So it's a question of like, what do you read? And so when I was in graduate school doing American literature in the 19th century, I didn't read any Black writers because they they just weren't really part, this is back in the 70s, they weren't really part of what we read back then. And I think with Reconstruction, I mean, certainly there are great Reconstruction historians who have looked at uh, what some of the elected Black officials, you know, the early years of Reconstruction had to say, but there hasn't been attention paid to... I think just a ton of stuff that Black people wrote and commented on and said about the impeachment. So I'll just uh, conclude by just quickly saying, uh, Brenda Wineapple's book, The Impeachers, which I think is a great read and, and I learned a lot from it. When Douglas comes in, it's kind of like, okay, now Douglas will do his cameo. you know. So we'll have a quote from Douglas, but he's not the story. You know, The story is the radical Republicans and their interactions with Johnson, and so um, when that book came out in two thousand and nineteen, I was in the midst of writing this book, and I thought, oh my god i 'm going to have to put this book aside, my book aside because Brenda Wineapple, who's a great critic, is going to cover all this stuff, but she didn't so as always i 'm happy about that because uh, I had a contribution uh, but but I, yeah, I think it has to do with archives and kind of just kind of switching the focus just a bit to what you want to look at.
0: I was fascinated throughout your book to see the rationalizations for whether blacks should be given the full right to vote, whether some blacks should be or whether no blacks should be. Um, Andrew Johnson, and I actually wrote it down um, in a separate place so I could find it quickly. Andrew Johnson says, Blacks need to earn their right to vote by being gentlemen. We can't just give the right to vote to anybody, any old black person. They've got to be a gentleman and show me that they deserve to have the franchise. Douglas said something else that is also fascinating. And I would say, I guess it's more revealing. He says, blacks will be hated. We will be seen as the cause of the war. And so the way to fight against that hate is to make sure that we can vote. Why did he say that further asserting black power would hold off the hatred of whites? It would seem to be the opposite. Why did he say, no, 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 no. The key to our power and our acceptance is being able to vote.
1: I think he's saying something like what Andrew Johnson was saying, that with the vote, we become citizens. Uh, and when we become citizens, we become part of america and uh, from within that perspective, you know Douglas wasn't a radical he he championed capitalism, he became part of the Republican party so I, th- I think he had a vision of blacks becoming respectable and unthreatening, just like any other American citizen. Uh, yeah, the whole idea of uh, Johnson's idea that you have to kind of prove yourself to be a gentleman. I'm not sure that every white person in Tennessee, you know, <laughs> was able to do that for, for Johnson as, as well. Yeah, right. Um, like, yeah, and, and and John- talk and about Johnson- different standards. <laughs> right. And, jo- and Johnson said different things at different times. And so I think that the cr- most crucial thing that I, that I found was near the end of 1865 when he writes to the governor of, of Mississippi and says, let's co-opt the radical Republicans Uh, Why don't you give some black people in Mississippi the right to vote? And those would be people maybe who fought in the Union Army or who had some property. And so, so it was. It's usually it's a two hundred fifty dollar property holding that one's supposed to have. So that's more traditionally in line with what Lincoln was saying. Uh, Douglas, of course, is saying you know. Uh, what we want is what's already on the books, that men over 21 can vote and Black people are men. I mean, that's, that's what he wants. And, um, and I think that he, that he thought if that happened, there would be emerging a respectable, hardworking Black citizenry that wouldn't be threatening at all. <clears throat>
0: um, I want to talk about this meeting that you talked about between Frederick Douglass, a group of black leaders, and Andrew Johnson in the White House in 1866. It is truly one of the most horrendous moments in U.S. presidential history, but I want to have you describe it for us. Um, Basically, a group of black leaders visit the White House, visit Andrew Johnson in 1866, asking for him to consider pushing for the right for freedmen to vote because they say there should be a new political party that brings together the freedmen with poor whites. And first of all, what a powerful idea, considering the words of LBJ a century later, where he essentially says so much of American politics seems to be convincing poor whites that poor blacks are a threat and putting them against each other. Um, Johnson, meaning uh, Andrew Johnson's response to the Douglas group, is ugly. It's hard for me to even repeat what he says, so I'm going to let you do the dirty work here and um, explain what... Andrew Johnson, how he responds to
1: these requests by this right, group right. of black leaders. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite moments in the book. And, and the reason is that I could bring literary tools to the analysis. Um, but basically, Frederick Douglass proposes near the end of 1865 to a black convention that a small delegation should go to Washington, D.C. and act as like lobbyists, uh, pushing for Black rights. So that's approved. And Douglas is always working with other Black people, and that's something I emphasize in the book. It's not just the heroic Frederick Douglass on his own. So Andrew Johnson has a history in 1865 of meeting with Black groups because he claims he loves Black people and they love him. So he agrees to the meeting, which was probably set up by Charles Sumner. He brings aboard a, I'm um, someone who knows shorthand to transcribe the meeting and to me that's really an important part of what's going on that there is this stenographer there named Janus cliffhane who is taking notes and he's absolutely brilliant at it because the first record of the meeting goes out that night is printed that night in a washington dc newspaper so um, johnson greets the group and they start to talk to him Johnson just launches into a speech. Eventually they're able to interrupt it. Uh, Johnson pretty much ends the meeting. Black people are walking out the door. Douglas turns to Johnson and says something snide about how you empower your enemies and are rough on your friends. The enemies are the former Confederates. The friends are the blacks who fought for the Union. And Johnson gets really angry at Douglas. There's this back and forth between them. And it's all written down by the stenographer and printed that night. Uh, meanwhile, we have a surviving record from one of Johnson's aides who said that after the Black group left, uh, Johnson used the N-word to describe Douglas and said he's a savage like all Black people. So all of his racism came out there. And Douglas in his uh, autobiography, Life and the Hines of Frederick Douglass, said he thought this meeting changed things, like how people view Johnson. And so what's interesting is if you look at the Christian recorder, which I know you will do right after we talk about all this, um, you see in 1865, the block's editing that newspaper like Johnson. In uh, February 1866, they they print the transcription of this meeting. And they say, this guy hates black people because by the very end, Johnson is saying maybe black people should immigrate. Douglas says, it's almost kind of like Muhammad Ali with the rope-a-dope, that we kind of brought out the racism. We made it public. People can see what this guy stood for. And following this meeting, Johnson is much more unhinged and so in it's a way hard that, you say that
0: cuz my next note is now things get really ugly and he starts vetoing yeah. things but go ahead yeah
1: He's vetoing things he's speaking in much more racist terms you know publicly um and there are these horrible uh, anti-black riots in Memphis and New Orleans that Douglas and the Radical Republicans blame in part on on Johnson and Douglas starts saying, saying things like the man who is celebrated in the Christian Recorder and elsewhere as the Moses of Black people is actually your your Pharaoh, and uh, mm-hmm. you know it's all it, so so I, I I see the meeting as as really significant, and one of the things that, that I could do now with the help of the Internet or digital humanities or whatever you're going to call it, i um, I could look at newspapers, you know, in just seconds around the country I had access to those. This transcript that was created for Johnson because Johnson thought the meeting would go well went what we now call viral. Uh-huh. It was printed. It was printed everywhere. It ended up in newspapers in California, uh, and so I think that's I think that's part of what Douglas wanted to accomplish: is to is get it- that out.
0: Is't it interesting how how he he spends his you know political career saying that he's a a a, black, a Moses for black people, and right. the slightest criticism right. from blacks sets him off. I mean what a revealing right. moment that is in this character of a powerful white man
1: yeah and, and so you could say you know he still believed in racial hierarchy I mean that's what white supremacy is all about. Um, And so uh, he could like black people. He could like dogs. uh, They are supposed to stay in their place. And so he sees Douglas as not staying in his place. You will probably ask me at some point about why is it that Johnson then (laughs) a year later offered Frederick Douglas a job in his administration. So there's a a weird little twists and turns in the story.
0: Um, As you mentioned there... Turns out to be um, a new Andrew Johnson is revealed. There is also white violence um, in the North and the South, particularly the South, but that violence starts to have an impact politically. One of the powerful moments of your book is how the civil rights advocates react to this violence. It's a really, some really poignant speeches are given. Um, There are incredible words spoken. So, how do we get from this meeting to suddenly, you know, to to Andrew Johnson being impeached and talk about this interlude of these beautiful speeches that start to be given by civil rights advocates.
1: Obviously Frederick Douglass was one of those people. Francis Harper was one of those people. The radical Republicans, they had things to say about this as well. On newspaper editors in the North had had, uh, were making arguments like that. So uh, yeah, there is a series of violent riots, that lead to the loss of hundreds of black lives. And and so you have, you could say, a kind of interlude of a kind of black lives matter moment where where people are viewing what's going on with horror. Uh, And Johnson, meanwhile, is kind of doubling up and saying, you know, this isn't my fault. And the radical Republicans are increasingly thinking it would be nice for the country to get rid of this president through impeachment. And one of, one of the chapters that kind of deals with, 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 with some of this is the chapter on that, that talks about the speeches that Frederick Douglass and Francis Harper gave in a black lecture series in Philadelphia. And this gets back to historiographic kind of issues of what do we read, what is available I have never read an account of Douglass' speech in this lecture series organized by William Still of Philadelphia, one of the Blacks who is the leader of the Underground Railroad. I had never read an analysis of Francis Harper's speech. This, uh, these are speeches that were given to Black people in Philadelphia early 1867. And I learned about them from an African Americanist at another university who's working on Francis Harper. And so he's looking at different archives, and he said, "Hey, Bob, do you know about these speeches?" And I said, "No." And I include one of them as an um, as part as an appendix, uh, sources of danger to the republic, um, because the Yale University Press complete Frederick Douglass doesn't include this. It includes a version that Douglas gave to a white audience in St. Louis. Uh, Yeah, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of very powerful, passionate speaking in the wake of of the violence about Black rights. And at the end of 1867, in his annual State of the Union, or whatever it was called then, it was a written text, Andrew Johnson gave what, what Eric Foner calls Uh, terms, the most racist uh, account, uh, words that have ever come out of the White House,
0: ever. How does Andrew Johnson's impeachment fit into the story of how Reconstruction fails?
1: Uh, That's a great question. And I think it's it's a question that's going to continue to be debated. And I offer an interpretation of that in the book. And I've had some kind of kickback, and I've had discussions, and, and so people are going to talk about this for, for a while. But uh, basically, Johnson was impeached under the Tenure of Office Act, which uh, was instituted by the Republicans in March 1867. So that's nearly a year before the actual impeachment. But uh, basically, the Tenure of Office Act said that you cannot get rid of Um, people in the administration who were appointed, at least in part, by the Senate. So um, then we kind of fast forward to early 1868, and that's when Andrew Johnson decides to fire Edward Stanton, who's Secretary of War, who had been initially appointed by Abraham Lincoln and the Senate. And according to the Tenure of Office Act, If you violate the Tenure of Office Act, you have committed a high misdemeanor and therefore an impeachable offense. So there's 11 articles of impeachment. They all talk about the Tenure of Office Act. And what that meant is during the trial that goes from March 1868 into May 1868, you're focusing on little things like... uh, What did Johnson do with Stanton? You're not talking about the big picture, and you're not talking about the things that infuriated the radical Republicans about Johnson. And when those things came up, and in the book I give an example of Benjamin Butler basically blaming Andrew Johnson for killing black people by encouraging racism, Chief Justice Salmon Chase, who was presiding over the trial, said you're out of order. That's not what this trial is about. It's basically about the Tenure of Office Act. So, maybe in an idealistic, utopian, quixotic way, I suggest in the book that it would have been better for Reconstruction if the racial issues were addressed head on. The kind of kickback is you couldn't really do that because racism is still is so pervasive. So, the Tenure of Office Act was a pragmatic way of being able to go after this president. And so I remain unsure you know, about that. But uh, it meant that three months of the trial were spent in what many described as excruciatingly boring detail. And if you go on the internet and yeah. you can call up the, you could actually call up the impeachment proceedings. It's about 2000 pages and tell me if you find all that much is interesting in there.
0: You're giving me a couple of homework assignments here. Um, how does Reconstruction end? I mean, this is a serious and this is a very important question. What are the successes and what are the failures of Reconstruction?
1: Yeah. Well, um, again, I'm going because I'm not a historian. I'm going to lean on Eric Eric Foner and say that he has a book called The Second Founding that he basically argues that a new nation was formed from the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. I mean, those are powerful amendments, and and they have the force of law. Even though by the mid to late 1870s, it was virtually impossible for black people to vote in in the South. So, I've read in the historiographic debate about Reconstruction. You know, some say it ended in 1877 with the so-called um bargain. You know, uh, that that. Permits a Republican to remain president. There are people who say it ends 1905. Uh, there are people who say it ends 1868. Uh, what you can, I think, Douglas saw it ending. I would say early 1880s, when the Supreme Court overrode a civil rights bill, and he basically saw. I mean, he he died a year before the Supreme Court Plessy v. Ferguson decision that legalized segregation uh, in Jim Crow. Maybe that's when Reconstruction ended. Uh, People now are saying it still hasn't ended. You know, that there are still issues about voting rights and racism. Um, And if I can mention Albion Tourge one more time, Reconstruction novelist, he he predicted that Reconstruction would end in the 1960s. And he said that in the 1870s, basically said you need 90 more years to work out some of the issues of the nation having been a slave.
0: So what uh, were we left so. with? I mean, what, you know, what, what are we left with now? We're in the 1870s, the industrialization starts to take hold. Right. Um, America starts to grow at a rapid pace. It becomes a world power. What are we left with given the failures of reconstruction to I guess, fully enforce the
1: rules that had been put on the books. Right. I mean, things are difficult. One reason I like working on Frederick Douglass, who I've been writing about since, uh, and publishing on since 1990, is he's always optimistic. And so uh, you know, there's, there's dark things one can say about the history of slavery and race in the United States. Uh, there are hopeful things one can say about American ideals or uh, that one can say about the reconstruction amendments. So um, Douglas, weirdly enough, I mean, this is part of his optimism. The Dred Scott case in 1857 ruled the, that Blacks could never become citizens and Blacks had no rights that whites should respect. Douglas has a famous speech on the Dred Scott's case. He says, this is wonderful. This is terrific. Because people are gonna see how absurd this is. They're gonna be moved to action. In 1894, and this is a year before he died, Frederick Douglass gave one of his most famous speeches, which was then published as a, as a pamphlet and circulated widely, Lessons of the Hour. So this is his speech about lynching. There's an upsurge of lynching in the 1880s and 1890s. Douglas goes through the whole thing, you know, uh, the horrors of lynching. The final paragraph of that speech is close to being the final paragraph of my book. And it's, it's basically Douglass saying, we still have American ideals. He located American ideals in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, which in in the 1850s and on, he decided was an anti-slavery, anti-racist document. In the 1840s, he thought otherwise. And he said that all we have to do is live up to those ideals. And there is the possibility of uh, a racially diverse nation coming together. Uh, Right now, we're living in an age of polarization. And I can tell you that I experienced that firsthand because I've gotten hate mail about my book. Because there is one sentence in the book that seems to attack Donald Trump. And uh, there are people on the internet who talk about the so called woke professor. Uh, so, in an age of polarization, one can be a little bit pessimistic. Uh, the way I regard the book is a history book that can get people, no matter what their po- politics are, to think in fresh ways about the past. But some of the polarization now has its origins in the history that I describe in, in the book. Which leads me to my next question. Hearing okay. the
0: description of Andrew Johnson, um he says he's a racist. Who cares? Right. You make it makes me think so much. No, 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 no. He's a
1: racist who thinks he cares about black people. But go ahead, go ahead.
0: Right. Um, it makes me think so much today of people who say, "Of course I care about black people. Of course I care about their rights," but then they don't do the things to support them, other than not say the n word. Right. How can we all use the lesson of Andrew Johnson? the racist who says he cares to help us deal with the racism in this country today?
1: Um, I wish there was an easy answer to that question. Um, and I will, I, I live in Maryland very close to Virginia and it is a day after the election of a new governor who's, A campaign was that high school students should not have to read Toni Morrison, and he won. So, what's the answer to that question right now in an age of polarization? I don't know, because the people who think this is absurd—that a campaign can be run around the question of whether high school students, white high school students, will be too traumatized by reading Toni Morrison, uh, that they're going to listen to anything that I have to say about the lessons of Andrew Johnson. I I don't see that. I don't see that right now. Uh, Johnson helps us to see how one can be blind to other people into larger contexts. And if one, and and so one could say, a lot of progressive education now about race is about doing that kind of thing. And then I can say that there has been a vicious reaction against that. Uh, And Texas is a good example. And let me tell you what I'm doing next week. Next week I'm talking and I'm being paid by the state of Texas to do this. Ironically, I'm talking to high school teachers about how to teach Frederick Douglass at a time when the Texas legislature is saying that a white children cannot be made anxious by America's racist history and that you should always tell the other side of the story. Douglass has just one side of the story. So how do you teach Douglass's most famous speech, which is what to the slave is the 4th of July? Which has, in a resounding moment, that America is the most evil and corrupt nation in the world. How do you teach that in high school, in the current moment?
0: Well, you got you got that's (laughs) my challenge. You got got a challenge ahead of you. (laughs) Um, What can we glean about the human condition that both Lincoln and Johnson started out poor? They both held racist ideas. Ideas when the chips were down one went one way and one went the other way
1: right um a i I like the idea it's very american goes back to ben franklin one can always change one can always rise um and then um one can always make mistakes one can always be blinded by certain cultural notions um I mentioned benjamin franklin you know benjamin franklin historians have learned once had slaves sold them in his philadelphia store and then became the leader 40 years later of the of the pennsylvania anti-slavery society i like that story i want to i want to work with that story that, that people can change they don't necessarily have to be immediately canceled uh the culture has enormous power over people cultural notions and I think we see that with Andrew Johnson. I also think, you know, people are gonna gonna keep writing about Johnson. Johnson always liked to fight. He always liked to fight. So when he was a poor, working class kind of person, he fought the he had to fight the Southern aristocrats. Okay. He becomes president. He has to fight the radical Republicans. There's a kind of psychopathology, maybe, in in Andrew Johnson. Um, the human condition—that's a tough one. I, I don't—I don't have any answers. The—the uh, the book does suggest that people can go in different directions and people can change. And um, even Johnson—I mean—I locate at least three distinct moments in his life. Um, and the moment that most interests me is that more liminal moment where he actually seems open to other people and open to the possibility of change, and was willing to go against the dominant notions of his culture. And there's also that Johnson the fighter, you know, there's dominant notions, I'm going to fight against them.
0: Lastly, here I want to ask about the first page of your book. Um the dedication. Um I have a close relationship with my sister too. Um you said it's to your sister, your beloved Karen Levine. 1960 Mm -hmm. to 2020. It sounds like you have a fresh wound there. How did you decide on that dedication and why? And um, I'd love to hear a little bit about Karen Levine.
1: Okay, Karen was, uh, there's three of us in the family. I'm the older brother. Um, She was the young sister. She went to Bryn Mawr and was a Spanish major and fell in love with Spain. And the moment she graduated, she went to Spain. And she met a guy in a bar who's a great guy and they got married. And so I had, I had a sister who lived in Spain for many decades, which was great because I got to visit her and Hmm. fall in love with Spain myself around um, 10 years ago. She had breast cancer and had surgery and it came back Hmm. and she lived with fourth stage, breast cancer for seven or eight years, which I found amazing. And uh, in 2019, the summer of 2019. Uh, my wife and I met uh, my sister, Karen and her husband, Antonio in Lisbon. And we spent two weeks walking around Lisbon. And that's the last I saw her. And then the pandemic hit. And then she had um, kind of breakdown, medical breakdown, and she died as I was working on the page fruits
0: hmm.
1: of the book. So I wish I didn't have to dedicate it to her. I was going to dedicate the book to my wife. It would have been the second dedication, uh, but this is a woman that I loved and miss a lot.
0: Hmm. Certainly our condolences to you. Thank you. Um, Thanks for sharing that story, too. I'm sure you weren't expecting I was going to bring that up, but I I saw it and I was interested. Um, Dr. Robert Levine, the author of The Failed Promise, Reconstruction, Frederick Douglass, and the Impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Certainly check out that book, which is published by W.W. Norton. His website is at blog.umd.edu slash Robert S. Levine with a couple of dashes in there. You can just Google it might be more of a straight line. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash Axelbank History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations.
1: We'll see you next time. Thanks.